You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 2 Peter. We're calling Be Diligent. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So a couple of weeks ago, we started this section of 2 Peter where he really is looking at these false teachers, and he breaks it across a couple of passages uh, in doing so. And so we had the first of those two, uh, and then last week we had our culture conference, and then we're going to finish up that section today. And that section two weeks ago, we began by talking about wolves in sheep's clothing, what it looks like for that wolf that would come in to a pasture deceiving others while having uh, the appearance of good intentions clearly is, does not have good intentions. You know, that theme is so, uh, so popular really in our world. There, there's other stories that we could point to. Think back in time, and it's an old enough story. You can go back to the idea of the Trojan horse. Remember that? Where you have uh, a battle going on, a war for Troy, and the Greeks come and bring this gift, and it's this large wooden hollow horse. And so they show up and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get inside the city gates. And so the, the Greeks offered this, uh, this gift that comes into the city and they close the gate behind it. And they think, what an incredible gift. And that night, during the night, there are some soldiers that are inside of the belly of that horse. And so they release the gate, they drop down, and then they go open the gates of the city. And all of a sudden, the enemy is able to come in and take over. See, we're so familiar with the idea of people having the appearance of good and being evil or using that for evil purposes that we just keep making up stories about it. Matter of fact, it came, became so common that we talk about uh, Trojan horse viruses on computers. If you're on the older side, maybe you've had a kid in your family say, hey, mom, dad, do not click the link in the email, Right? Because we're so familiar with the idea is that clicking a link can give somebody access to your full computer. Something could come in, spyware or something that would actually take out your computer. Think with me about the emails. Maybe, maybe you don't get them. I know it happens to me sometimes. Matter of fact, it happened a couple of weeks ago where all of a sudden people in our church started reaching out because I sent out an email saying, quick, I need help and I need gift cards. And to our wonderful church's blessing to me, they're like, what do you need? How do you need it? And when do you need it? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. You occasionally get that email that some long lost relative left you a huge sum of money somewhere else in a faraway land, right? And they just need your social security number and your date of birth to be able to clarify that. See, it's everywhere, isn't it? We're familiar with these kind of things. Well, we started talking a couple of weeks ago in this about those things that we could look at. Now, church history, if you look back several hundred years, churches have tried to figure out what does it look like? What are the things that help factor in to our practice of the faith? And so these aren't new terms and they don't originate with me, but four different elements that are there. Reason, how do we think? We, we want our faith to go across our intellect. Tradition, it could be church tradition, doesn't have to be. It could be the way you were raised in your home. Your family taught you these things. Experience, what are my experiences in this life? Now, those three things all need to take place within the sphere of Scripture. 
Because at the end of the day, Scripture is what drives our train. That's what drives us to truth. Our experiences do not always drive us to truth, right? And so for us to think in terms of what does the practice of our faith look like, it's really the integration of those four things and how we look at doing that. So as we think about that with those up there, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. These are things that have been said to me. You may have said them before. You may have heard these things before. But if you look at those things, those circles, I invite you to consider the following statements. God helps those who help themselves. See, what do we do to accommodate that statement? Is that our experience? Is that the tradition that we were raised in? Does that seem logical? Can we point to it in Scripture? Because the moment that we have one of those things that we can't point to in Scripture, as we have placed that other circle, reason, tradition, or experience, as the elevating or the priority in the way that we think about things. Let me give you another question. God wants me to be happy. Now, if you want to argue God wants you to be holy, that's scriptural. God wants me to be happy, I think we'd have to look at some stories of Scripture and say, God didn't come through for those people, right? So how do we wrestle with that? How about this one? We are all God's children. How do we process that again? Number four, God won't give you more than you can. Where does that come from? Is that our experience? Is that our tradition? Is that our reason? Is it grounded in Scripture? Or another one, one last one. When you die, God gains another angel. See, those are all things that are out there. And depending on how we wrestle with Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, is going to lead us to the idea of how do we think about these things? So two weeks ago when we were talking and we were looking at those seven points, and I was talking about the fact that we can have doctrinal differences. We can have doctrinal differences with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so really a couple of ideas, right, is we need unity in the essentials, and we can have charity towards each other in the non-essentials. And so if we have unity in the essentials, what would those essentials be? In other words, if a wolf is going to come in, what are the things that that wolf would want to attack? And so we offered up, or I offered up this list of seven bullet points. Is that these things are so core to Scripture? Is I think we've got to have unity in the body of Christ on these seven things. We've got to. They're core to our faith. Because of that series, that, that message, and this series of seven bullet points that are here, Part of what we're going to do is we actually made an edit to our, our preaching schedule coming up. So we're going to cover 2 Peter all the way up to Palm Sunday. And then we've got Palm Sunday and we have Easter Sunday. And the following week, we are going to take the next seven weeks that if this is what is really the, uh, the test or the litmus test to understand wolves versus true believers, we're going to take seven weeks to look at these seven points. So we're going to have one week per bullet point, so that we're really clear, so that when a wolf comes among us, is that it's really, really clear what we're looking at. So we're going to be continuing our series. Today, we get to look at the conduct of these false teachers. So I invite you to open up your copy of Scripture to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. So when Peter wrote this, he didn't offer us verse notations. Those came later by a group of editors and translators. And so Verse 10 is where we ended two weeks ago, but we ended right in the middle of the verse because it seems like it changes, it changes thoughts in the middle of that verse. So we're going to begin in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, 
part B, all right? So this is the first of their characteristics. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. The first point that we would notice about these false teachers is they are incredibly arrogant incredibly arrogant. And he points to two things here that he would want to call out to our attention. The first one is, know this, apostles, faithful teachers, righteous believers who walk with the Lord, go back to the early days, prophets in Israel had this characteristic. As they saw themselves set apart as unto God because of who God is and what God had done for them, that they were set apart to him for his use and his purposes. We were tools in his hands to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. That's always been the reality, is a setting ourselves apart to say, Lord, what would you have me do? This group is different. They reject prevailing thought, and their lives are, are directed by bold and willful, and matter of fact, they do not even tremble. Bold. They are daring. They're presumptuous. I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do. Willful. I am incredibly arrogant for that. Now, the question is, how do you end up there, right? I mean, how do you end up there? That's not the tradition of our faith. Well, he just told us at the end of, of 10a, right, is that they indulge the lust of their defiling passion and they despise authority. Now, the reality for you and me and them and everybody else is this, is somebody is calling the shots in our life. Somebody is our master. The tradition of the Christian faith has been that the Lord sought us out, that he redeemed us, that he offered himself on the cross on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel, that he offers us life out of death. He has purchased us, redeemed us from sin, and therefore, he is the one who we answer to. That's what's always been. This group say, you know, no, 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 you know what? I despise authority. Who do you think you are, God, that you would call the shots in my life? I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. And you know how Peter describes it? They indulge the lust of the defiling passion and they despise authority. Well, if that's who you are, if you're the captain of your own ship, like these people think they are, then guess what? Be bold, be willful, do not tremble. Just don't call yourself a follower of Christ because this is a different way to live life. And that's how they're doing it. They're doing it their way. Now, if that's how they want to live and that's what they're doing, then recognize they take it a step further. It's not only that they're bold and willful, it's not only that they don't tremble, they're not apologetic at all. There's no shame in these people, and we're going to see it throughout this passage. There's no shame in these people. No, I'm the captain. I will do what I want to do. And so they step into this, and all of a sudden, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Glorious ones uh, is most probably a definite, um, an allusion to angels, the angelic realm. And we'll say that because I think it's about to become more clear, because here's the audacity for what these false teachers do. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, 
do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, false teachers, before the Lord. Now, let's just take a second, because the fact is, is when we die, we do not become angels. We do not change the order of creation at the moment we pass. Here is the really, really great news. You and I, as image bearers of God, are the ones that God has counted as having incredible worth and value. How do we know? Because when we fell into sin, God originated a plan to redeem fallen humanity. It took on Jesus Christ taking on the incarnation and coming in the flesh and going to pay the price at the cross for our sin so that he could die for that sin so that on day three he could resurrect, walk out of the grave, conquer death, and offer us life. You know who he did not do that for? Fallen angels. Now, fallen angels are a different level of creation, and they, are, they do have supernatural characteristics, okay? They are stronger than humanity. They are more powerful than humanity. They are not worth more than humanity. You, God sought to redeem you. He didn't seek to redeem the fallen angels. But these teachers that he's looking at, here he comes back and says, you know what? They're bold, they're willful, they do exactly what they want to do, and you want to know how arrogant they are? They will attack and blaspheme the angels in heaven. You want to talk about crazy? These angels who are more powerful and mighty than they are, who are in the presence in the throne room of God, they are on earth as inferior, weaker beings talking down and blaspheming the angels of heaven. Now, that's a huge statement. And then they tell us, you want to see how outlandish it is? Whereas the angels, greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them. False teachers, blaspheming the angels in heaven, in the presence in the throne room of God, they're more powerful and mighty, they blaspheme them, these angels do not blaspheme them, even though they're in the presence of the Lord. And, and we see this elsewhere. We see this in Jude. But when the arch, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know who is authorized to offer rebukes and judgment? God. That's it. And these false teachers, feeling so arrogant and good about themselves, they're trying to hurl out judgments and, and, um, and wrath against these angels, and the angels recognize something they don't even know, the humans don't even know. God's job is to hand out wrath. God's job is to rebuke. And that's exactly why Michael goes back and says, you know what? All he says is, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord will bring this judgment. That's not my place. They feel pretty good about themselves. He goes on and talks about what this has done. Now, Jude 10, the very next verse, captures the same idea, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. We're going to hear this theme here again in a second. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So look back at what Peter says here. Verse uh, 11, they do not, uh, these angels do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Verse 12, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. See what he's describing them? That this behavior, this arrogance in them has left them functioning like wild animals out in the jungle. 
They just are instinctive. Whatever my instinct wants in this moment is what I'm going to do. See, I mean, they're just indulging whatever they feel, whatever comes across their mind in that moment. Now, if you think with me about what that looks like, then all of a sudden we see these irrational beasts walking around the church. And they're false teachers. They're appealing to instincts. Now, this isn't new. I mean, Paul talks about this too in Galatians 5. When Paul says, look, I I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Because what he just said, if you despise authority and you want to indulge the defiling passion of your flesh, you have a choice to make. Now, Paul writing in Galatians 5 is talking to believers and he says the same thing. You've got a choice to make at any given moment. You can walk by the Spirit or you can walk by the flesh, but you can't walk by the Spirit and gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't work, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're they're knocking into each other. They're warring for us at every given moment. These false teachers have said, you know what? I'm not even going to try to walk by the Spirit. I'm all in on indulging the flesh because the Spirit wants to to control me. And no, we're not going to do that. He goes on, and says, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They just beat into each other. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, what is incredibly, um, incredibly toxic about this idea is if I were to ask you, what is it that you want to do? Because you can turn this passage around and say, you know what I want to do? I want to do the things of the flesh. And if you don't know the Lord, then that is true. If you know the Lord and you have a new heart, the moment of salvation where you joyfully concur with the law of God, the end of Romans 7, that what is most true about you if you know the Lord is that you want to do the things that honor and please the Lord. That's what's most true. And when Paul writes this, he's saying, look, you can either walk by the Spirit or you can live among the desires of the flesh, but they can't coexist. Because in any given moment, you and I have to ask the question, do I despise authority such that I would walk according to the Spirit, or do I want my own way? How do we think about those things? And Paul says, you know what? To keep you from doing the things you want to do, because as believers, what you and I most want to do is honor the Lord. And Satan has this way of getting in there and saying, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, who really wants to live under authority? Who wants to be under submission? You know what you really want to do? You want to let them have it. You want to do whatever it is you want to do. You want to live by instincts. That's not the spiritual life. The spiritual life is one that submits to the the Lord and walks according to the Spirit, that we become used of Him for His good purposes, not living like a jungle animal. Look back down here, because he makes a statement that sounds really, really harsh, right? Blaspheming, excuse me, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Those are strong words, born to be caught and destroyed. Now, I got to tell you, Think about college campuses, and, and we want to have and, and have a solid college ministry. Think about when you walked on a college campus, if you've been there, or if you're going to head that way at some point, is we've watched generations of college students walk onto college campuses and not be prepared to defend their faith. They walk into liberal arts classes. They walk into sociology classes. They walk into psychology classes. And then they have this moment where they feel like their faith doesn't measure up, where they get taken to task. Somebody is questioning them about their faith. Now, 
you guys, I think, all know that we've got two children who are off at college, and I brought you guys into part of the story back in August when my daughter, 10 days before we were moving her to one college, said, I think God is calling me to a different college. I'm like, next year? She goes, no, this year. I'm like, in the spring? She said, no, like in 10 days. And off we went. And Ellen and I's conversation of, well, I guess we get on board. We see if God is at work in this. Let me tell you, when we read that Peter says they need to be caught and destroyed, think about somebody you love, and life seems so tenuous, doesn't it? Like their faith, it sometimes feels like it's just hanging by a thread, and you want things to go well. You want people to come in and affirm it. You want people to have this congruent message about who God is and what he means to them. And we want people to converge into that so that there's this tremendous safety net. And then we send them off to the college campus. You know how I would feel if my kids called me today and said, Dad, I was sitting in the sociology class, and I know that you've always said this, and I know what the Bible says, but my experience, my reason, my tradition are failing me, and I don't think that that's true anymore. You know what I would think? Catch and destroy. Now, that doesn't mean take their life. Destroy their lectern. Destroy their influence. Destroy their capacity to wreak havoc on another person. When we read these words, Peter loves these people. And these false teachers that are arrogant and defiling, uh, they're indulging their defiling passions, and they're out there living that life, despising authority when we've been brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is upset. And he said, they've got to be caught and they've got to be destroyed because they're like a wild animal. You know, James talks about Satan being like a lion on the prowl. Imagine with me that you would bring a lion into your house and just let him live there and not try to catch him. That's what happened. And he's looking at these teachers. Give that lion unfettered access to your house. You know, don't even sleep with the door closed to your bedroom, right? No way. There is too much at stake. That's why I like this quote by, by Bennett where he says, as animals are trapped through their eagerness to satisfy their appetite, so self-indulgence betrays these men to their ruin. They chose this path. They had an opportunity to submit to the Lord. They had an opportunity to walk according to the Spirit. They rejected that. And now they find themselves in an influential position teaching others about all of this stuff. They're incredibly arrogant. So how do they live? Look at verse 13. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their decept uh, deceptions while they feast with you. Payback's coming, but you know what? Their lifestyle is one of wild revelry. That's all they do. Well, if you're going to indulge your own passions, then go all the way in, right? And it tells us that their judgment's coming. It's payback. See, these shameless deeds that used to be done in the dark, used to be done in the dark, they've come out. They're so shameless. They're living all of this out in the open. Why? Because they're the captain of their own ship. They're bold. They're willful. They're brazen. They will do whatever they want. So they're not even trying to hide it anymore. The thing is, they claim to be spiritual leaders. And when you see spiritual leaders and the idea, I mean, Paul says it to Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. 
If you take that idea, follow me as a teacher, as a mentor, as I follow, then the invitation to everybody that sees them in the daylight hours is like, well, I guess that's what you do. I guess that's what it looks like to walk with Christ. That's what you do. Be your own captain. And all of a sudden, this is where they are. And they're all in. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. You know, these counterfeiters, they just come right in and they come right alongside. They're not real far out there, right? They just come alongside. If they were real far out there, you could see it. They're just right there, right alongside. Matter of fact, he describes it as that they come and attend the feast with them. These agape feasts where the Christian community would gather together. They'd probably celebrate communion in that. And they would rally around, get this, following the Lord. And you got false teachers there that are like, no, 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 no. Don't go too far with that. That's kind of crazy talk. Be bold. Be willful. You don't need to tremble. Matter of fact, you don't even need to hide what you're doing. Despise that authority. Indulge your sinful patterns of the flesh and just live it. Be your own person. He has a lot to say about that. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. You know, there's a great passage in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. It's about marriage and husbands and wives. And there's this idea that when we get to heaven that we will be presented to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, without, without a spot or blemish. Now, I gotta say, we think about what that would look like and oh, what a day that will be. Picture if we were up here at a wedding, many of you have been in a wedding here before and you got a bride up here and her, her white dress and just looks lovely and beautiful and imagine somebody comes walking down the aisle and they've got a big bucket of muddy water and the bride is just standing here and somebody takes that bucket of water and just throws it all over, all over her white dress. There would be gasps, there would be anger, there would be tears. And Peter says that's what these false prophets are doing. These false prophets have come into the church with their buckets of muddy water, and they are just throwing that all over the bride of Christ. And that white dress that was intended to be sparkling and beautiful for such a moment as this find themselves covered in all of this grossness. See, the sacrificial system required that you have an animal that you could sacrifice that was without blemish. Without blemish. It had to be perfect. Romans 12, Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Men and women of the church, we're called to live as sacrifices. Sacrifices needed to be without blemish. That doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin patterns, but are we submitting to the authority of the Lord? Are we rejecting those passionate uh, fleshly desires or, and rejecting authority, or do we bow to the authority and go before the Lord? Because that's part of what it means to be without blemish. These folks are not doing that, and they sit side by side with you. These counterfeits, these wolves, they're all a part of that. He goes on. Look at the second half. Uh, look at the first half of verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Their eyes are full of adultery. How does that happen? Well, Jesus explained it. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So look back at this. Adultery begins with the eyes. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. This is a lifestyle, a lifestyle of innuendo, a, a lifestyle of taking everything and taking it to the gutter. It's who they are. They entice unsteady souls. They're teachers. They'll bring other people into their perversion. Imagine accountability where this is the leader and somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm having a tough time with my eyes. And he goes, oh, no, 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 that's okay. We despise authority. Just give in, indulge whatever desire you have. Now, the reality is for the immature person, you can look around and say, really? I thought this was different. No, no, no. No, not at all. You just be whatever you want to be. Bold, willful, don't tremble. Do it in the daylight. See how bad this is? And then he says, they're enticing unsteady souls. I, got a chance, I had a chance to go fly fishing for the first time in my life last year. And so they're, the guys I went with were great because I'm terrible. I knew nothing about this. And so they're tying flies for me and putting them on. And we're talking about how to cast this thing and, and so forth. And what you realize is this. You put a fly that will attract the right fish, right? And you put it on the water and you let it sit there for a minute so that it will grab their attention. And that's the analogy. You want to go to a group of people who are unsteady in their faith and cast a fly out there and like, do what you want to do. Live the life you want to live. Be your own captain. Whatever you want, give that to yourself. I don't care. Despise authority. Be your own captain. And all of a sudden, that's who these false teachers are. And all of a sudden, everything is coming back more and more perverse. They have hearts trained in greed. Hearts trained in greed. That, that word trained is where it's the word gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium, that you have to train yourself into it. And if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, does Scripture ever say train yourself in anything? Well, yeah, 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. You want to get into a gymnasium? Get into a gymnasium and train for godliness. That's a gymnasium worth being in. Author of Hebrews, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. You want to get in a gymnasium? Get in the gymnasium for two reasons. One, that you would train yourself for godliness. Get, two, get in the gymnasium that you may be trained so that you can distinguish good from evil. The gymnasium is significant. But you catch the gymnasium they're in? They're in the gymnasium training for greed. It's a gymnasium. But when you look at it, think with me. You can see how this goes. Is maybe the first time it's a small step into greed. And you think, well, I kind of like that. That kind of worked out pretty well. I could kind of control this situation. I could manipulate this situation. Let me go a step further. And the next time they go a step further and they get more. The next time, they get a little bit more, and now they've trained themselves. They know how to manipulate. They know how to deceive. They know how to do this. And here's the thing. It's not an accident. It has been trained, it has been learned, and it has been perfected. And there the church sits in her white wedding dress while they come up and throw buckets of muddy water all over her. He's really, really clear on what's going on here. Matter of fact, he says, you know what? Accursed children. Oh, they'll be judged. God says, I see what they're doing. I see what they're doing to my church. I see what they're doing to my bride. 
I will judge them, but they're like children. What does that mean? Well, it probably seems to be a couple of different things. One is behave like children. Maybe, you, maybe you've seen a child lately, a young child, maybe self-centered. They don't care if you're asleep. They want you to get up and come take care of them, right? They are undisciplined. They want immediate gratification. They lack vision for the future. That's who these people are. Let me tell you, if you're looking at this, sensuality, deception, greed, each of those three things are worthy of judgment. And all are inappropriate for the person who would stand in front of the bride of Christ and say, let me for selfish gain lead you down a different path. Pretty clear. He gives us an example here. You may have heard it before. If you haven't heard it, this is about to sound really, really strange. You can read the story in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, 23, and 24. But let's pick up the story where where he's writing, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who gained, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, if you've never heard that story before, then that sounds really bizarre. And even if you have and you allow yourself to think about it, it still sounds bizarre, right? So the ancients would have said this is anybody that could not speak the human language was inferior, which is funny because we've done the different thing. Like we can't understand dolphins, therefore dolphins are a higher level of intelligence, right? They looked and said, donkeys can't speak our language, so clearly they are the bottom of the barrel. Balaam was this one who led Israel into a a foreign worship. And part of that foreign worship was the worship or included the practice of what they would have called sacred prostitution. He said, you know what these prophets are doing? These prophets are following after Balaam. And they're inviting you into the idea that your faith looks like indulging all of your fleshly sinful patterns. Come worship God by participating in this. And all of a sudden, you look up and say, you know what? You know where this got really strange for Balaam? When a donkey all of a sudden began to verbally speak, you know, If you know the story before, you're like, yeah, 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 I know. Balaam's donkey spoke. Think with me about what this is like. Animals don't speak human language. You view them as the dumbest of all of creation because they can't speak our language. And all of a sudden, the dumbest of the dumb speaks up and begins to rebuke Balaam. Get this. The dumbest of creation even understands that what Balaam is doing is wrong. If you're Balaam, you've got to have a minute like, whoa, the donkey's talking. And then your next thought is, what does Balaam know that, excuse me, what does the donkey know that I don't know? And you've got an incredible moment there. And that story's recorded for us. And these false prophets are so outlandish that just as a donkey judged Balaam, the donkeys could still judge these false teachers. An irrational beast who's given to instinct, like everything he's already rebuked them for, is the one rebuking Balaam. It's a pretty strong statement. Now, here's the thing. When we moved into this this passage, first part of verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Forsaking the right way. It's a narrow path. 
Get it. It's a narrow path. Jesus isn't bothered by narrow, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's narrow. We don't need to be afraid of narrow. If we're honest, before we came to faith, every one of here would say, you know what? I tried to find a way apart from Jesus. It didn't work. I tried to find the truth apart from Jesus. It didn't work. I tried to find a life apart from Jesus. It didn't work. Guess what? If you want to find the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus is it. Jesus specializes in a narrow path. That's the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't know the way, you don't know the truth, you don't know the life, but you said, I'm sick and tired of trying every way I could do it, then know this, there is a way to the Father. And it's through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to redeem you and me. There is a way. It's a narrow way, but it is the way. And he's looking at them saying, you know what? There's always been a narrow way. That's not new. But these people are leading him off of it. And so we come down to verse 17. These false prophets are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. You know, a waterless spring kind of just feels like a hole in the ground, doesn't it? If there's no water in it, then we really wouldn't even call it a spring. But you might walk in and like, oh, look, here's a spring. Oh, that's dry. Okay, it's a hole in the ground. If you've ever been to a theme park in the summer, Disney has them, Six Flags has them, where they've got like those misting stations. Imagine it's a hot day and you're just so thirsty. You're like, you want a bottle of water? No, no, no. I'm just going to go stand under the misting station and open my mouth. That won't quench. And a waterless spring is useless. It's just a hole in the ground. It makes me think about, remember those cartoons uh, where you'd have somebody and they're traveling across some kind of desert wilderness and they have this mirage in the middle of it and there's like a palm tree and a beach chair and like a body of water. And you'd see that cartoon character run and jump in the water and then you see them spewing water out of their mouth and they're doing the backstroke and stuff. And then you get to the point where they realize it was a mirage. And then what? You see them and they're throwing sand in their mouth. That's these false prophets. They promise you refreshment. They promise you water. Dare I say, they promise you living water and they can't get there because it's nothing but a hole in the ground. It's nothing other than a misting station. And you and I and everybody that get under their teaching finds himself putting sand down our throat. See why Peter's angry? That's why they need to be caught and destroyed. Their influence needs to be gone. His words are strong. They're hypocrites. They cannot produce what they were promising to produce. What's the reward for them? For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now, I'm going to say this. That word gloom is a word for darkness, and then the word, a different word for darkness appears there too. And Peter's making it really, really clear. If you would allow me to read kind of a rigid translation of what this verse says, it says this, for them, the densest darkness of darkness is reserved. Like, dark is dark. And Peter says, I know what darkness is. But let me just tell you, if you think there's only one level of darkness, there's multiple. There's darkness. And then there's this corner over here that is the densest of darkness within darkness. God's upset with these false teachers. Peter has had it with these false teachers and their influence. 
His words are strong, and we need to be aware of what is coming. So what do we do? How do we think about this? We've taken two messages to talk about false teachers. Not to scare us. We don't need to be scared. But we need to recognize this. One is we've got to learn how to identify them. Because when we identify them, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a position where we can avoid them. And as they have influence in those people around us, then we have the opportunity to warn them. We've got to do more of that. It's not our job to, to judge them and rebuke them at the level that God does. God will bring judgment and wrath. That's not our job. Michael didn't do it. We don't need to do it. Let God do that. But I would like to take a second and talk about this because this phrase is coming up more and more. Matter of fact, somebody contacted me not long ago and said, hey, I'm afraid I'm going to offend you. I want to talk about the fact that I'm in this phase where I'm deconstructing, okay? So let me just take a minute and talk about deconstruction. If deconstruction is a process of slipping off the stuff that we just naturally add over time, that's a good thing. If you're familiar with Jeff Foxworthy, Jeff Foxworthy uh, is the comedian who talks about you might be a redneck if. And I heard him talk about you might be a redneck if you have a certain kind of RV, said, you know, RVs are meant to be aerodynamic, they're engineered, they're meant to be beautiful, but you can always tell when a redneck gets a hold of it because they start welding stuff all over it. They weld a deck onto the back, they weld a barbecue pit in, they weld a uh, a satellite dish on it, whatever. They just start welding stuff. So if the idea of deconstruction is getting that RV back where we take off the deck and the barbecue pit and whatever else we put on there, then maybe let's think about it in terms of this. Because if we look and we take that original thing and say, you know what, my practice of faith has some reason found in Scripture, but it's got some secret reason outside of Scripture that is driving my train. And I've got some tradition that I see in Scripture, but there's some other stuff I think is really, really good that needs to be included in that. But it goes against Scripture. That's fine. I don't think Scripture was comprehensive. I think I can add some things to it. If the process of doing that gets this back into shape, then great. If we take one and say, you know what? I know the Bible says God's good. That's not always been my experience. And so, you know what? I've got my scripture. I've got my reason, my tradition. But I've got this experience thing over here that I can't quite fit into this. And so, God's not really good, but he's not all bad. He's kind of good. And so, I've got this experience out here, and that kind of drives my train. So, I don't know that I can really trust him. See, If deconstruction puts all these things back inside and allows us to work from the idea that we need to strip away the barbecue pits that we've welded on and the decks that we've welded on, then praise God, because we've got to get back to Scripture. We've added so much stuff to our faith, and we expect everybody else to carry that, and we've elevated reason and tradition and experience over and beyond Scripture. That's not appropriate for us, church. So what do we do with this? Well, I don't know. I would ask you three questions. If we're deconstructing and you need to do that, we need to always be thinking, am I adding stuff to the gospel in my own life? We need to learn how to ask those questions. We don't need to be afraid, but I would tell you what, we need some some fence posts around us such as this. Do you love Jesus more? If in your deconstruction, you decide that Jesus is not who he said he is and he's not as significant and he's not as wonderful and he's not the beautiful savior that scripture portrays, that's a problem. Do you love the Word more? If in your deconstruction, you start withdrawing from the Scripture and you pull away from Scripture, 
And I'm talking about love is word more, and I've defined it two ways. One is that you're feeding on it, and two, that you're following it. You've got to get in this book in order to follow it. They two go hand in hand. We've got to have that. And then three, do you love his bride, the church, more? And so often when I see people going through this phase, what they hear is, I'm leaving the church. I don't need him. I've just got this. I've got the great outdoors. I'm going to do this, that, or whatever. Let me tell you this. If we're going to love the Scriptures and feed on and follow the Scriptures, we can't make up our own definitions of church. One body, many parts coming together to do all those one another passages. You can't do those alone. We are the bride of Christ. Our dress may be tattered and torn and have some smudges on it, but we are plan A for God's plan for this world. We're it. There's no plan B. So we engage the church. We love the church. If we've been in an abusive church, we find a healthier church but we don't separate from the bride of Christ. We may need to get into a bride of Christ that loves his word more. We may need to get into a bride of Christ that loves Jesus more, but those are, how, those are what it looks like for us to do that. We've got to lean into this so that we can be aware. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stonelight Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.